Let's try again. I'm a guest speaker. Come on now. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I love the song selection. I don't know if Andrew put that together, but it is providential for what I have to share this morning. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. And as you're turning there, uh, I need to share a personal note from our entire team at the Cross Current. Uh, we thank God for all of you, all of you and your partnership in his gospel here at Knollwood. You know, as the fog starts to lift a little over our local mission field, your faithful support has helped us mobilize many, many more churches for gospel ministry together. I, I would love to tell you more about that uh, after church, but, um, but as you're looking at Psalm 73, continuing on that personal note, I invite you back to the year 2000 uh, where I had a crisis of faith. So after an almost perfect pregnancy on September 21st, 2000, my wife Dawn gave birth to our first baby, a seven-pound boy named Canaan. And about, about an hour after Canaan was born, he developed unexpected health issues, and he was given only a year to live. And he actually died 30 days later. Now, if you, uh, if you Google 100 Huntley Street, comma, Corey McKenna, uh, you'll find uh, about a 10-minute interview segment called Coping with Loss, Coping with Loss, where I tell that whole story. But as you can, I know you can appreciate, Don and I were devastated. It was not supposed to be this way at all. And shortly after Canaan's death, I can remember crying out to God in desperation and in prayer, God, as your redeemed children, why, why would you allow our only son, as your redeemed children, our only son to be so sick when so many ungodly people have such healthy children. And I'm sure if, if we passed an open mic around the sanctuary this morning, we'd each have a, a story to tell about a personal crisis of faith when we've, we've all asked some version of this confounding question, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? Why? Well, it is my prayer that this sermon will help anyone listening lament for certain and of true hope amidst suffering, even when God's plans don't seem to make sense. In fact, let's pray now, and then we'll walk through Psalm 73 together. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this time together. And as I open your word today, God, I pray that you will lead me by your Spirit and help me to handle your truth correctly, God. And, and in so doing, Father, I, I pray that you would encourage your children and bring you, Lord, you the glory that you alone deserve. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, before we dig in, let me lay a bit of groundwork about the author and the context of this psalm, Psalm 73. It's a psalm of Asaph. Asaph. Now, Asaph was a skilled musician. He was a songwriter, and he was a prophet, and he was appointed by King David to lead one of King David's three large worship choirs. Asaph was also a Levite, 
the tribe that served the tabernacle and temple. And David gave Asaph, Asaph psalms he wrote, David wrote, to make music for worship. And so this psalm begins book three of the psalms. And in context, please listen to this, in context it looks at why the people of God are going into exile. Tuck that word upstairs. Exile and suffering as God's chosen people. Why God's people are going into exile and suffering as God's chosen people. Now this sort of psalmist's plea should really resonate with us because First Peter actually says that we, as God's chosen people this side of the cross, we, quote, are elect exiles whose citizenship is in heaven and we will suffer here. We will suffer here. And so this psalm presents a crisis of faith. And as we seek to solve this crisis together, we'll start by seeing how perspective relates to rescue. Let me say that again. How perspective relates to rescue. I like the show, I Shouldn't Be Alive. Have you seen this before? It's a, it's a UK-based documentary that features the accounts of like hopelessly lost individuals who's, who kind of lose perspective amidst these prolonged, life-threatening situations. <laughs> Depressing or what, right? But that's the backstory. But, but often after their suffering ends, the person's testimony, because I always put a mic on them and get a testimony, it goes something like this. You know what? When I was lost in the woods with no food, no water, no shelter, no friends for like 98 days, the sweetest sound that I heard was the whoosh of that rescue helicopter. And when they're lifted over, above their hopeless, sort of horizontal perspective, right, to the more calm and more peaceful aerial perspective, they always seem so humbled and really so, excuse me, so surprised as to how much clearer and simpler the whole situation looks when they see it from high above, right? Well, that, that's a bit, that's a bit like we'll learn from the psalmist here about seeing life from two perspectives, two perspectives, God's and man's, two perspectives, God's and man's. Look at verses one to three. He starts, truly God is good. Truly God is good to Israel. Now note, initially the psalmist does see from God's perspective. Truly means that he knows God is good to his redeemed people. It says those pure in heart. He knows this. Starts off pretty good, right? But, but watch what happens next. When his perspective changes, so does his heart. When his perspective changes, so does his heart. But as for me, shift back to horizontal. Now he's seeing from man's perspective. Look what he says. My feet had almost slipped. Very selfish, isn't it? My steps had nearly slipped. My feet had almost stumbled, it says. My steps nearly slipped. So obviously he'd, be, he'd come dangerously close to falling, but because this is past tense, we know, praise God, that God's grace sustained him. It always does. Amen? God's grace sustained him. 
But we can't miss the warning here, church. How did this almost stumble, nearly slip happen? When his perspective shifted from seeing God's true good for him to seeing what I'm going to call man's illusory, that's an important word, illusory good for him. And so his heart became, look what it says, envious, jealous when he saw the seeming prosperity of the ungodly. Now it's, it's so interesting. This word for prosperity here, you're going you're gonna to recognize this. It's actually shalom. Shalom. It means God-given peace, literally. Question, do wicked people really experience true peace with God? No, they don't. It's actually quite the opposite. So, so get this. So the success he thinks he's seeing, he's not really seeing? That's right. It's an illusion. It's an illusion. And being fixated on the philosophies of this world. I've got two teenagers. Actually, one's 20, one's 17 now. You guys believe that? 20 and 17. Where'd the time go? But regardless, being f- when, when I see these guys fixated on the philosophies of this world, it will fake you out every time, mainly because of the evil one who's behind them. And like Pastor Sam Storms says, wow, this is good. He says this, we become like who or what we behold most. Let me say it again. We become like who or what we behold most most. So be careful who you behold, Christian, and be certain to see life from the right perspective. Here's a point, because seeing life from man's perspective brings confusion and fear. Confusion and fear. And we see how the the life of the wicked looks from man's perspective. Look at verses 4 through 14. Going to work that through. Where the psalmist, he first wonders what we've all wondered at some point in our lives. Why do the wicked prosper? And he lists off several confusing ways the wicked seem to prosper. I want to keep qualifying that. Seem to pros- prosper. And, and for simplicity, I've grouped them in three categories. The affluence of the wicked, the arrogance of the wicked, and the influence of the wicked. First, the affluence of the wicked, verses 4 and 5, says this, for they, the wicked, have no pangs, it says, until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Now, pangs is another word for pains, and fat and sleek could be translated as healthy and strong, because unlike our time and place, fat was actually enviable in ancient times because it was sort of like, like physical proof that you weren't hungry and you certainly weren't poor. So it was sort of enviable. Further, look what it says. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. I mean, come on. The, the wicked never seem to struggle the same as us godly ones, do they? Don't seem to. So not only, not only are they well-fed physically, but they seem so Footloose. They, they, they seem so fancy free emotionally too. Healthy and wealthy without a, a care in the world. 
So from man's perspective, why does God allow the wicked to be so powerful, free, and so seemingly full of life? That is a good question, a very good question. So they're affluent, but the psalmist is also confused by the arrogance of the wicked. Look at verses 6 to 9. He says, therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. They're clothed. They're covered in arrogance. And not only does that mean that they think they're better than everyone else, but this word violence used here, it implies that, that they live very selfishly at the expense of other people. Another level of arrogance. Violence. But he continues, their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten opposition. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the, through the earth. What does all that mean? Jot this down. Arrogance brings blasphemy. Arrogance brings blasphemy. What did our Lord say? Jesus said, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. This defiles a person. So though the hearts of the wicked overflow with thoughts and words and actions of blasphemy and idolatry, that happens. We know that happens. They still seem to succeed. They, they still seem to prosper. Why is that so? Great question. We're getting there. Great question. So from, from his human perspective, the psalmist is confused. He's confused. He's, he's pouring this out to God. He's confused about the affluence of the wicked. He's confused about the arrogance of the wicked. And third, he's confused of the, about the influence of the wicked. Verses 10 to 12, the psalmist seems now he's sort of fearful. He's kind of fearful now about the fact that the wicked's pseudo-prosperity also pollutes other people. Look what he says. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. I mean, we've all seen the power, the power and influence of riches pervert people, haven't we? And it seems as though people are drawn to rich and powerful people. It's like a magnet. And that's why if you hear testimony of folks who are wealthy and rich and famous, that lifestyle can bring a plague of fair-weather friends. They're never really sure who loves them or not. But he says, and, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. So often, so often wicked people use their influence to, to intimidate, but more so also to, to instill fear in others. But they blaspheme God all the while, and it seems as though God is giving them a pass. So seeing life from man's perspective, that the psalmist is just plain confused. He's confused about the prosperity of the wicked, and he's even fearful that their influence seems almost limitless in this lifetime, doesn't it? That's what he's saying. Well, I mean, that's terribly depressing. It really is. It really is. 
And we know that so often the deeper the thinker, the darker the hole. Isn't that true? The deeper the thinker, the darker the hole. It's no wonder that the lives of of many, so many secular philosophers and thinkers end in futility and and they end in tragedy. Happens a lot. So just when you thought that man's perspective couldn't get any more depressing, now his plea sort of turns inward. It's more self-pitying. Look at verses 13 and 14. He says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Now he's wondering, I mean, does personal holiness really bring God's blessing? Jot down, yes. (laughs) It does, yes. But at the heart of his confession is a second very, very tough question. This is kind of an apologetic question. It seems like the wicked prosper, so why do the righteous suffer? Why do the righteous suffer? And what we'll learn here is that while it's totally okay to cry out to God with these tough questions, it's okay to do that. As we do, please hear this, church, we always have to remember who He is while we're doing so. So as an equipping evangelist and missionary with Knollwood, let, let me just, let's just take an apologetics pit stop. Okay, we're going to kind of do a bit of a sidebar. Pit stop here, okay? And I want to do my best to briefly answer three common questions related to God, sin, and suffering. Very common questions. Talk to your uh, non-Christian neighbors, your family, your friends. These questions are rattling around in their hearts and minds. So let's answer these questions. First, this one. If God, if God is both all-powerful and all-good, why is there evil and suffering in this world? Well, the Bible definitely teaches that God is all-powerful and God is all-good. And we know that there is evil in the world. So what's the answer? What's the answer? Well, at this point, I want to kind of phone a friend here. I want to borrow a couple very helpful quotes from Dr. Greg Bonson, one of the most brilliant um, Christian apologists in the 20th century. Here's what Greg Bonson said. He said, don't speak for God where he chooses to remain silent. There is evil and suffering in this world for a reason which is perfectly sufficient for God. That's true. Now, that, that answer may not fully satisfy my intellect all the time, but it sure satisfies my soul to know that God is sovereign. It's very important. But, you know, I am a child of God, and I'm suffering now. Now, why does God not stop it? Because He can. Again, only God truly knows. He may stop your suffering, but He may not. He may not. But here's what you do know, Christian. That as his beloved child, listen to this, for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Amen? In his mysterious and miraculous way, God somehow, you know this is true, you know this is true on the other side of heartache and trial and sorrow. In his mysterious and miraculous way, God somehow orchestrates and and harmonizes both the beautiful music of life, and you've heard it, and that ugly, dissonant noise of suffering, and you've heard it, but he does that somehow to fully accomplish 
both our temporal and eternal blessing. How, how does He do that? Again, God only knows how He does that. But in the biggest picture possible, as His children, as His children, blessed be Your name, we have His promise that one day, one day the suffering will stop for us forever. So why do bad things happen to good people? There it is. That's the ultimate question. Probably one of the most common questions I hear as both an evangelist and a pastor is that. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, Scripture says that in the beginning God created everything very good, very good. However, when sin came into the world, all the bad things came, came with it, including what? Including pain and, and suffering and even death. And we all here, sitting here, we all experience the terrible effects of sin in one way or another. But because we've all sinned, we must remember this humbling statement. There really are no good people by God's perfect standard. Only God alone is truly good, which is why we need Jesus to save us from God's wrath and our sins against Him. That was the pit stop. Back on track now. Back on track to the text. So we know that seeing life from man's perspective brings confusion and fear. Hear those words, confusion and fear. But Christian, do confusion and fear come from God? No, God is not a God of confusion. He's not given us a spirit of fear. So that's why when we change our perspective, God changes our hearts. Now, I know as sovereignists, there's tension in what I just said. I get that because I'm feeling it too. When we change our perspective, God changes our hearts. Because why? Because seeing life from God's perspective conversely brings this, clarity and faith. That's from God. Clarity and faith. You see, when the psalmist's perspective changes in verses 15 to 17, everything changes, church, in the verses that follow. Look what he says. He confesses this. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a, a understatement here, right? Under, if you're writing your Bible, understatement of the century right here. It seemed to be a wearisome task. Yeah. Jot down this reference. Uh, I wrote this down. Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9. Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9. God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your way and my thoughts than your thoughts. Christian, understanding God's ways is not just a wearisome task. It's totally impossible. It's totally impossible. It, it's like a don't try this at home sort of stunt, or anywhere else for that matter, right? You know what it's like? Trying to understand God's ways is much like an ant crawling its way across your driveway trying to understand how Wi-Fi works. That's what that's like. Not happening. So what is the spiritual solution then for converting confusion and fear, man's perspective, to clarity and faith? Here it is, seeking God and seeing life from His heavenly perspective. Seeking God and seeing life from His heavenly perspective. You see, the psalmist says understanding all of this seemed to be a troubling task until, 
until, look at verse 17, turning point. Until I went into the sanctuary, I went into the presence of God. And then I discerned their end. There it is. There it is. Life is so much clearer. Faith is so much stronger when we behold the glory of the Lord. The whole point of this morning as an act of worship through the fellowship and the, 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 the musical worship and the preaching, it's all to behold the glory of the Lord. All of it. All of it. You know, last summer I started a dangerous personal study in the book of Revelation. And no, I don't want to talk about it after service. I don't want to get anyone upset with anything. That, that's a really contentious book, isn't it? But, but i got to tell you that, that those particular devotional times, they inspired more worship and more witness in my life than anything I have enjoyed for a very, very long time. And one book that I've been blessed by is this. It's called The Returning King by Vern Poitras, by Vern Poitras, where he says this. Listen to this quote. Poitras says, we worship what we desire, whether sex, money, health, long life, fame, or riches. The remedy for this is the desire to be in the presence of God in the new Jerusalem. See, that's why when the psalmist disciplines himself, and it takes discipline in this culture, busy, 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 when he disciplines himself to be in the presence of God, to behold his glory, his base desires change, his desires change, to come into alignment with God's higher, holier desires. Christian, in, in our time and place, are you confused? Are you confused? Are you maybe even fearful about why the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? Well, again, seeing life from God's perspective brings clarity and faith. And three clarifying and faith-building attributes of God are clear in this psalm. There's many, but I just want to pull out three from this psalm. First, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Verses 18 to 22. Read those. Look, it says, truly, now that's the same word as verse 1. So now what's happened? He started by seeing God's perspective. He went horizontal to man's perspective. Everything got blurry and weird, but now he's back to truly, which is a reserve, word reserved for God alone. God defines what that means, right? But he says, truly, you set them, that's the wicked in context, in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, God, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. See, the psalmist now sees God as supreme authority. God as supreme authority in all places, with all people, in all situations, they're all under His total sovereign control. So, from man's perspective, it may seem like the wicked have security 
it may seem like the wicked have stability. But from God's perspective, look what it says, they're willfully storing up wrath against themselves. That's Romans 1. Peter and I had a very interesting discussion in the prayer time about Romans 1 in the state of the world. It's happening. It's happening. But somehow God, in all of this craziness that we live in right now, God is somehow sovereignly setting them up for their fall. Now, side note, the unbeliever is not the enemy. The enemy is the enemy. The unbeliever is the one who we're fighting for, ultimately. I just want to say that. But we know God's setting them up for their fall. Well, when? When? I don't know. I don't know. But the main point here is that in His perfect timing, they will fall and they will be judged justly. Justly. Which leads to the psalmist's second clarifying and faith-building attribute of God. God is just. God is just. The unbeliever is totally fine with that till they realize they're not. God's goodness is the unbeliever's greatest problem because they're not good and they must be judged justly. <laughs> Right? The mafia have no fear of a corrupt judge, but a great deal of fear for a good judge, a just judge. Right? Verses 27 and 28, look what he says. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. It's no coincidence that follow the syllogism, follow the logic, that because spending time with God in His presence is where His holiness is most mysteriously seen. It's also where the psalmist sees God as just. See, we know justice, God's justice flows out of His holiness, doesn't it? And practically, this means that God always does what is right. He Himself is the ultimate and final standard for truth and for justice. So look what it says. He will eventually put an end to all sin and all sinners. But from God's perspective, again, we know that for us as His children, we've heard the gospel. For us as His children, His justice has been fully satisfied in Christ. And He is actually our refuge and our strength forever. Amen to that. God's wrath is not on you if you're a believer here today. It's been satisfied in the personal work of Jesus Christ. This is why the psalmist is moved to worship. Look what he says. But for me, it is good to be near to God. Now his heart is moved to worship. Because now, now he's seeing life from God's perspective. And he's been brought Holy Spirit clarity on who he is as the psalmist, whose he is, and the truth that God is faithful. That's number three. God is faithful, verses 23 to 26. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. Look at all these yous here. Look at the focus. Look at the perspective. I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will, statement of faith, receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire. Lord, would this be true of me? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Christian, if you're confused, maybe even fearful about why the wicked prosper and the righteous seem to pointlessly suffer, suffer we, need to, we need to hear this. Get alone 
with God. Get alone with God. See life from His eternal perspective. He is forever faithful. He's, he's forever faithful never to leave you. He's forever faithful never to forsake you. He's faithful to hold your hand through every storm. He's faithful to guide you all the way home because the same Holy Spirit that now lives in you will finish the good work that He's working in you and through you. And today, if your heart and flesh are failing, we've all been there, if your heart and flesh are failing, be strengthened by this. Be strengthened by this. God knows. He knows. He knows you're lost in the woods. God knows that you're hungry. God knows that you're thirsty. God knows that you're cold. God knows that you're tired. God knows that you're lonely. So please, from this passage, from the heart of the Spirit of God, hear the whoosh of that rescue helicopter by hearing from this psalm how we can have true hope amid suffering. I've found at least four ways we can have true hope amid suffering. First, we can seek God to have true hope amid suffering. Verses 17, 23, and 26, pulled all together, says this, I went into the sanctuary of God. I am continually with you. God is the strength of my heart. Right? If beholding the glory of the Lord makes life clearer, if beholding the glory of the Lord makes faith stronger, then we need to seek God first, it follows, for true hope to be the outcome. But second, we can serve others. We can serve others to have true hope amidst suffering. Look at verse 15. What, a, what an interesting verse. He says, if I had said, I will speak of thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. The psalmist is literally saying that if he hadn't sought to serve others in his lament, he may have, he may have spread his confusion and his fear to them too. He's now others-focused. It's very interesting. It's very interesting what he's saying here. Now, I can totally testify to the truth that when, when my wife and I, back to 2000, when we were suffering in neonatal with a very, very sick son, and God graciously, providentially, mysteriously <laughs> moved my heart to take my eyes off myself and to serve others who were also suffering but alone without the hope of Christ? Can you imagine? Can you imagine this last three years without the hope of Jesus? But when I, when I, when I did that, he made miraculous things happen, miraculous things. Third, we can live in light of eternity to have true hope amid suffering. We can live in light of eternity. Again, in verses 23 to 26, the psalmist, by the Spirit of God, sees above and beyond his suf suffering. Look what he says. Afterward, afterward, you will receive me in glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see this eternal perspective now. Martin Luther, you've heard of him. He was a, a man who was no stranger to suffering. Luther said this. I love this quote. There are two days in my calendar, this day and that day. That pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? This day and that day. Like Luther, we can have true hope 
by seeing the temporary suffering of this day. If you were to if you were to extend a tape measure from here to Sydney, Australia, one millimeter would not accurately quantify how short this vapor is. It's gone. It's so short in light of eternity. But we can have true hope by seeing the temporary suffering of this day in light of the eternal joy, the eternal peace of that day when we will see God forever in glory. Fourth, we can, we can worship through witness, worship through witness to have true hope amid suffering. Let me unpack that a bit. Verse 28, he says, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. Why? Here's why. That I may tell of your works. Evangelists see things other people don't. I'll just be honest. <laughs> Here it is, right? It's, 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 it's the call to go. I love that. See, in, in our evangelism training at the Cross Current, we teach that worship inspires witness. Worship inspires witness. That is to say, time in God's presence in here must move us to tell others of God's presence out there. And as it applies to our personal pain and, and, and our personal suffering, God promises to provide exactly what we need when we need it, and He gives us what I call gospel glory stories to share with others. I could go on a really long tangent. I won't do that. The picnic's coming. Bear with me. I get it. But we in the West have become largely, and I'm the first guy to admit it, a testimonialist culture. I just don't hear them anymore. You go overseas and the question is, so when did you repent? That, that's, that's a weird question, right? Like a Westerner would go, what? what? What do you mean by that? But God gives us these glory stories for the purpose of sharing with other people. And with, with that in mind, I want to go back to Canaan, to our son, to our son. In my darkest hour, man, it was my darkest hour, just before Canaan passed, God graciously brought me to my knees in worship, and He gave me this supernatural peace and perspective and he moved my heart mysteriously to actually minister to other families who were stumbling so blindly through a, a very similar dark season. Now, I have so, so many stories to tell, but because uh, Don and I were actually living in Guelph at the time, we're both originally from Halifax, God brought two glorious opportunities for us to worship through witness. And that was a celebration of Canaan's life in both cities, in Guelph, where we currently lived, and in Halifax, where we were both born and raised. Now, in Guelph, we were, we were in tears. We were in tears when, when Canaan's non-Christian nurse walked into the funeral. I mean, she was so intrigued and, and, and impacted by our testimony, she drove all the way from Hamilton just to hear what in the world was this all about, and to pay her respects and hear about our hope in Christ. Amazing. And back home in Halifax, I mean, I'm from Halifax, hundreds of lost loved ones gathered. Hundreds. I preached the gospel, of course, right? That's what we call low-hanging fruit in my industry, right? I mean, they're all there. But the Lord even gave me the strength to worship through witness musically by singing this song that sort of became our theme song through the trial. You know that song? <clears throat> My singing voice is good this morning, but... Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy. 
tried and true with thanksgiving I'll be a living sanctuary for you remember that song you can just imagine here I am knees knocking going up all my family and friends in one spot like that's like one huge Thanksgiving dinner where you're scared to share the gospel with your, your mom and your brother they're all there sing that song so many stories to tell but one particular this is key non-christian friend and, and a fellow musician who's thanked me many, many, many times over the years for singing that worship song at that funeral. Just last year, might have been in 2020, just to pick a year, kind of a weird year for everyone, right? <laughs> just that year, he phoned me for help amidst, it was so out of the blue, but he referenced that moment and he said, I, I think you can help me. He needed help amidst his own personal suffering. And he asked, Corey, how can I have the kind of hope you have in my suffering? How would you answer? How would you answer that? Well, in our context as elect exiles, here's how and why God says we're to answer. Great memory verse. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Sanctify, one translation says. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Why? Here's why. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That is the gospel. Because the gospel itself is God's own glory story of his own suffering and his own deliverance for us. So though... His plans for our pain and suffering don't always make sense. We can know for certain, again, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Amen. Let me pray. Father God, I come to you now in the name of your Son. Lord, in the power of your spirit to humbly ask that you minister to the hurting hearts of your children. We thank you that because of the person and work of your son, everything we experience is working for our good and your glory to make us more like Jesus, our highly exalted suffering servant. God, we love you and thank you. In his mighty and matchless name, amen.